Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Murky fool, like squirtle and cake boo. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, and I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the complexities of the human psyche. Women, passion, longing, self-confidence, and sexuality. I've been thinking about the constructive narratives of lies we tell ourselves and the lies we often tell others through our silence. My guest today is Lisa Taddeo. Her short stories have won two Pushcart Prizes, and her writing has graced the pages of Best American Sports and Political Writing Anthologies, and publications ranging from New York to Glamour. Elizabeth Gilbert describes Lisa as a tireless reporter, a brilliant writer, and a storyteller possessed of almost most supernatural humanity. The most recent focus of those talents has been set on the pages of her new book, Three Women, the true stories of the sex lives of three American women based on nearly a decade of reporting. Welcome, Lisa, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for having me, Ellie. So I've been sort of debating how we start to talk about the book and also how much you want to divulge about the women's stories. So I'm going to kind of leave that aspect up to you. Um, And maybe we can just start um, talking about the beginnings of this project. You say you set out to register the heat and sting of female want so that men and other women might more easily comprehend before they condemn. Um, So where did those seeds start to get planted in you and for you, and then how did you set off? Well, the book, the idea for the book started with my current editor, who at the time had read a story that I'd written for New York Magazine and said that I could write a book about almost anything that I wanted, which is both an amazing thing to say to somebody and also absolutely haunting, especially somebody who had never written a book before. So that was the beginning. Um, and it was great, but I didn't know what to do. He sent me a number of books and among them was Gabe Talese's Thy Neighbor's Wife. And he had spent a decade on the book that he wrote. And while I really loved the immersive aspect of it, I, I felt that it was a little bit too much from a male perspective. And so I decided at that point, I thought, what would a book about desire look like from a female perspective? And that's where the seed and the germ for the book came from. I didn't know what I was doing in the beginning. I drove across the country the first time. In the end, I would drive across the country six times. But the first time I drove across the country, I went to the Kinsey Institute, which is, as you may know, where they study sex and where Alfred Kinsey began with his experiments and, um, and studies many years ago. And I met a couple of experts there and scientists. And I also met a doctor who was prescribing these hormone treatments for this group of women. And the group of women were interested in talking to me uh, for the book. And, you know, I didn't even really know what the book was about other than sex and desire at that point. So I decided to move to Indiana because I had to get out of New York. I just felt that New York was not the right place. Uh, to start. I was too much in my own world and my own life. And what happened, the, 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 real, the real thing that launched the book into what it became was that one of the women in the discussion group who ended up becoming the first woman, Lena, who is the suburban housewife in Indiana, who when she first walked into this discussion group that I'd begun, she said that her husband no longer wanted to kiss her on the mouth. 
and that the very sensation offended him. And I, I thought that was so searing and so sad and so also shared and familiar by so many people I'd already spoken to. And I was telling one of my friends back in New York and she said, oh my gosh. And I was telling her how she'd reconnected with her high school lover and she was basically following him to wherever he said he was going to be four hours away. She was running to wherever to see him. And I was telling my friend, you know, just kind of like the, the background of her story and why I was interested in it. And this friend of mine said, Oh my God, that is so pathetic. Mm-hmm. And that was the moment when I realized what I wanted the book to somewhat be, which was a, a way of showing us, not just women, but the, you know, whoever read the book, that we are also similar. And to call someone else pathetic was so strange and and sad to me, especially since I had to remind my friend that she had done the same thing, albeit with a different window dressing, a different man, a different city, that we have all done the same thing or sometimes thought the same thing or wanted to do the same thing, but didn't do it. Um, So that, that to me, and even if we haven't done the same thing, the notion that we can appreciate or understand why somebody else would, it was very, was very sad to me. And so I wanted to intimately explore and be very specific about the emotions and the details of each subject's experience so that other people would hopefully be able to understand and empathize rather than judge. And it seems throughout the book that your friend's response sadly, was fairly typical. And even at the time, and I don't know if this had happened before you met Lena or afterwards, but that her therapist said, said, oh, no, that's perfectly normal. And that's fine. Had you gone in with any preconceptions about the work they had done, um, that Kinsey had done, or the foundation had done, and the differences between um, male and female desire? I'm sure that I had preconceptions. I probably because I'd been writing for Esquire magazine for quite a number of years by then, I had I had uh, been in touch with male desire in the sense of writing about it more so from a male perspective, talking to men more so than women, because I was writing for a men's magazine. So I felt like I understood male desire a little bit. And so uh, that's how I kind of started the book. I was like, maybe I'll start with a man because I was writing for myself. I was writing to myself. I was writing to my friends. That was sort of the beginning mindset I had. And so uh, I felt like I was naturally going to be drawn to men and that I felt like I already knew about women a fair amount. But as I started talking to women, I realized that I didn't know very much at all. And considering that I am a woman, I, it felt very just new territory to me. And that was something that that got me thinking. So I guess the major preconception I went into was the thinking because I, I am a woman that I would naturally understand female desire, which I I don't know that I still do. You know, I mean, desire is so different. It's also so similar. So these women do not speak for all women or all men or all races or all, they speak about themselves. But, but that's the thing I wanted to do was isolate a number of stories. And I didn't know it was going to be three stories. I had 20 in my first draft. Um, 
you know, I just wanted to isolate stories and tell their specific desires to show how we vary and how we are similar, but mainly how, in terms of the similarity, the fear of judgment of one's desire, the fear of someone seeing that we're not getting what we want and so not being honest about it, uh, specifically with women, because I think men, men, there's this sort of, you know, specifically with, with heterosexual men, there's this idea of like, I, I want this, I want to conquest this person. I want this conquest. And if I don't get it, I will either keep trying or move on to someone else. It's not an embarrassment so much. Do you know what I mean? I do. And I think that that's the beauty of the book is that you navigate through this landscape and the reader goes with you as far as where are the boundaries and the lines for the individuals being so willing to share their stories and then how does that affect you as a reader and your personal life and then society as a whole you know that I feel like you know maybe those times you were driving across country within the book you're doing that um, as a storyteller and I think the reader is doing that we are driving through that territory and navigating and noticing different things um, along the way you re refer to the stories in the book as conveying some necessary humanity. And I'm wondering if you could explain that a little bit more because the three women definitely are willing to expose their humanity and, and are you know going through um, years of, of understanding it. And you do that as well as a researcher. I'm wondering, did you anticipate also spending a decade on this or was this something that unfolded as well once you decided what the book needed to be about? Oh, I did not know at any year when it was going to end or really when it would begin. That was part of the issue, too, is that I I didn't know what my first story would be. I had many stories before Lena in Indiana, uh, and I didn't know if any of those stories would stay. I wrote about all of the other stories that I wrote through them. So I didn't know. Um, I didn't have any idea of time. I did have a two-year contract and a deadline. So that was definitely, um, you know, after I went past the two years, I was, I was a little bit like, oh, oh no, I've never missed a deadline in my time as a journalist. Uh, I never, you know, missed anything in terms of deadlines or, or times. I'm very punctual and neurotic and a very true Capricorn. So I, I, I think I called my editor. I said, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I, I have never missed a deadline. I don't have something. I, I think I sent him something at that point. It was pre, I think that was pre Lena actually the two year mark or is I just met her. I just moved to Indiana and I said, I have nothing really to show you that I'm proud of. I will send you what I have, but it's not a cohesive thing. And I'm, it's, you know, I just don't know what to say. I was very scared. And he, what was wonderful, what I think was just, you know, I mean, I think it's very, it was rare as far as I knew. He said, don't worry about it. Take as long as you need. Uh, we will just, we will figure it out. Something else will come from it from the time. Don't worry about it. And that was really freeing and great. And then, you know, I kind of took that suggestion and, um, you know, offer into a rather long 
longer time than I thought I was going to. So, so I didn't know. You you end up speaking primarily or writing about primarily in the book about Lena, Sloan, and Maggie. Um, so maybe you could just mention a little bit about uh, Sloan and, and Maggie, their, the basic stories that they were living. Yes. So, so Lena, as uh, you know, I, I mentioned was a housewife in Indiana. She had just begun these hormone treatments. She lost weight. She was feeling very sexy and her, she was just feeling good and healthy. And she had not, her husband, and they had not really had been intimate for nearly a decade since having their children. If they went in with, they were intimate, it was very, he would stroke her arm or something and be like, feel like doing it. And that was the beginning and the end of any intimacy. Towards the end of the time, right before she came to this doctor for these hormone treatments, he became almost in completely, um, completely separated himself from her, did not touch her in any way, whether it was in a mild brushing shoulders in the kitchen sort of a thing. And that was awful for her. And then that was when they went to the couple therapist who said that it was okay that her husband said that he didn't want to kiss her on the mouth. It was okay that the sensation offended him. And, and so that was where Lena's story began. And it, it morphed into her reconnecting with her, the love of her life from high school, who she began to see again. And, and that was, and Lena's story beyond the fact that she wanted to talk so very much to somebody who would listen, it was also unfolding in real time, which was so, was kind of a dream in terms of a, a narrative and also in terms of her wanting to communicate and my wanting to listen, it just felt like a real symbiotic situation. And it was, I think it was really good for both of us in many ways. And the second, who I lived with Lena in her town for about, two years and spoke to her for a long time after that. And I still continued to speak to her and all three of the women. But anyway, so Maggie, the second person that is in the book, but not the second person that I, I spoke to was, uh, I was researching another story in North Dakota and I was reading the local newspaper and I read about Maggie. Her case had just ended. She had brought charges against her high school English teacher who she allegedly had an affair with when she was underage and his student in high school. Um, and I just, I, I called Maggie's mother who was in the white pages that day and I introduced myself and I said, I just wanted to, they had been badly misused by the local media. Um, so they were a little bit afraid of more media. So I just said, you know, I'm, I'm not writing an article. I'm not, I don't really know what I'm doing. I just read about your story and I feel like there's a lot there that nobody's listened. And I just felt like nobody had heard her part. All I heard was what the community thought about it and what he, it, it was so much skewed in the teacher's favor that, that I didn't, I didn't know what, what had truly happened or what not had happened. But what I did know is that I didn't hear Maggie's story. And so that was what, me to go there. And the third and final subwoman person, is that the idea that there are women is really happenstance, to be perfectly honest. The third woman is Sloan, who is this very beautiful entrepreneur uh, in the Northeast in Newport, Rhode Island. And she 
I had moved there for several other people who I had heard about, who I'd, I'd spoken to previously who were interested in talking to me. And by the time I got there and I was interviewing these other people, everyone kept telling me, have you met, oh, you're writing a book about sex. Oh, you're doing this. Have you met Sloan? And I said, no, who's Sloan? And they said, she's, there were two rumors. The first one was that her husband liked to watch her have sex with other men in front of him. And the second rumor, which was told with almost more alacrity and alarm, was that not only did she allow it, but she enjoyed it, having sex every day. And when I heard that, I was just, it was, I was like, okay, this is part of the, the judgment aspect. And while I wanted to talk about female desire, I also began to see how much judgment was interwoven with female desire. And, and that became almost as important to my, to my, to what I wanted to do as the actual, as, 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 as compelling as their narratives were, I found it almost as compelling that the people around them were judging their narratives. All three women um, in the book spend a tremendous amount of time, it seems, managing and carrying these relationships at whatever stage they're at. Um, they're doing all the work to make it work, and they're doing this sort of very calculatingly and consciously. Do you believe that that's typical? And um, what's getting lost when there's so much effort, you know, contrived effort to make sure they don't tip the cart? I I think that... You know, I think that Lena did a lot of that. I don't think that Sloan did much of that. I think with Sloan, it was more, I think Sloan has one of the happiest marriages of anyone that I spoke to. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's aberrant from the norm, which is obviously going to make some people say, you know, judge it and think that because it's her husband's proclivity to watch her have sex with other men, she would say things like, you know, and it's, it's in the epilogue that she, he does all these things for her. He does things that she needs. He makes her feel like the most beautiful woman in the world. He says to her every day, you're my fantasy. I hadn't really heard that from anyone else, specifically not someone who'd been married for over 15 years. So, you know, he does all these things for her. She did that for him. If she one day said, I don't want to do this, or and she certainly, there were many nights that she did say that, he wouldn't have left her or gotten angry or said anything. Uh, so that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect is that they met this man, or they, they had already known this man, but they entered into a relationship with this man who made her feel, she liked him. It felt good. It felt exciting. It felt exciting and safe. Um, and then she felt this, this sort of paragon. Um, so I don't think Sloan was trying not to tip the cart with Maggie. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I, she was, she was not only trying not to tip the cart so much as not trying to upset an authority figure, which I think is, is different. It was more about wanting this man that she looked up to to continue to make her feel like a valued human being, like a valued child and student in the world. So I think that's a little different too. With Lena, you know, Lena, yeah, it was definitely a, if I upset this arrangement in any way, if I make him feel fear about what we're, about his wife finding out or about me liking him too much, then 
then it's going to all end. So yes, with Lena, I think it was absolutely that. But I also, I do think that women, a lot of women, not all women, not, you know, just a lot of the women I spoke to, that was, it was a very common thing. My family is from Italy. I was just over in Italy and I was talking to so many women there who, uh, you know, I just knew in the town and my, that my mother was from and uh, very traditional uh, women who would say, you know, I would just saw them feeding their husbands and, and making sure that their husbands were, were fed and happy. And that's uh, not that there's anything wrong with that. And, and in some cases, the men did the exact same things for the women in other ways. And in some cases they didn't, but that's a, that's a sort of holdover of a patriarchal society is doing that is the woman staying at home, making sure the food is ready. That's not gone, you know? And so, and I found that in so many places, specifically in the middle of the country, we see so much in, um, on the coast and on the big cities and in even the smaller cities that are more progressive, we see the opposite. We see men staying home with the kids. We see women going to work and all of that, but, but that's not the norm that I saw, you know? So that was kind of why I, I thought Lena was so emblematic of so much. It seems like one thing that all these women share in regard to their desire is uh, a need to be seen and validated and cared for, that in various ways, all three other women didn't have that when they were growing up. Um, they were loved, and, and yet striking examples of not being cared for by their direct family or by other people in the community that they were close with. Um, and I, I'm thinking while you're talking about Sloan that she's she's made very conscious decisions she's she's been very self-aware as far as what kind of woman she wants to be and she makes determined decisions about that um, throughout her young adulthood uh, do you feel like the, that was maybe the distinguishing factor that allowed her to be in a happier relationship and have her desire fulfilled more yes I do, I do think so. I also think that Sloan, she grew up thinking, and she grew up being told she was beautiful and being told that she was great at this and great at that. She grew up in a very sort of, in a community in which she was one of the prettiest and, and the best and the most popular. So I think that early confidence that comes from that, specifically in a society that is so focused on beauty, even though the other two women in the book are conventionally very attractive. For Sloan, there was more of a, a just, it was a very uh, cliched popularity in that way. There was also a lot of pain. So I think you mix those two things together and you get a personality that feels good in all these situations, but then there's these darker holes that are there too that are created by by perhaps some of the coldness of her family some of the ways they didn't talk about things so so yeah I mean I and I think she gave a lot of thought to what kind of a woman she wanted to be I think that Maggie was too young at that point to do that um when, when she was in this relationship with this teacher and I think that for Lena she had she had been raped as a young woman, then abandoned in her marriage by her husband. And between those two poles, all she had had was this man, Aiden, who she had reconnected with when, when her, her marriage began to really fall apart. And in that way, Lena 
Lena didn't, you know, didn't have the time to figure out who she was. But even more so than that is that Lena, while she didn't seem to know who she was so much, she knew what she needed as a human being. And I think that her self-awareness and her, despite being in a very Catholic traditional household and despite having come from even more traditional, um, being raised very traditionally, divorce was not something that you could even think about. The fact that she went as far as she did to get the things that she wanted to get and to have the self-awareness and the feeling to feel like she deserved to be happy was quite something, I thought, for where she had come from. And Lena has a really hard time finding women who understand her reaction to her predicament. Um, She has a husband who supports her in their eyes and who fixes things in the house. She has a nice house. It's clean. You know, why should she care if they aren't having sex? How has this become the norm, do you think, for so many couples and then the the people around them the reaction to it that she should be glad for what she has i I think that that's that's a common theme and not just in the middle of the country it's a common theme with with i think so many women and and a lot of men but i saw it more with women there's this idea of no matter what a woman let's say there's a woman who's childless if her friend becomes pregnant, even though the friend perhaps did not want the child as much as the woman who is childless, there is a an uh, there is a jealousy and an anger on the other on the childless woman's part. It's natural, but it's also it begins to seep into other parts of of the relationship, and it 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 sort of goes beyond the oh she got pregnant and I want a child, and I am now. And it now makes me feel even more sort of empty and it makes the whole feel even larger. It's more than that. What I would see was that it would become this sort of like, oh, she got pregnant. She has this. She has that. Her outfit the other day was really great. It it just sort of snowballs. And when that happens, it becomes less of a less of a friendship and more of a, a competition. And if that woman who is now has a child complains in any way about the child or the husband or the house, the other woman does not want to hear it or, or, or thinks that it's not, it's just not a reason to be upset. And, and the thing is what I, what I've found, what I've always sort of felt is that all pain is relative. And, you know, perhaps someone who loses a dog feels like it's not as the, a person who loses a cousin, let's say, might think the dog that someone else losing the dog they've had for for 15 years is not as important. There's there's a relativity to pain that we often overlook, and I think that that's that's another part that I saw happen a lot. The judgment is sort of linked into people um, taking their own barometers and reading them onto others. It's interesting too. I'm thinking about when you say people, when people start getting pregnant in your friend group or they start getting married, they want you to do it too, right? Because they want to validate that choice. Um, especially maybe, you know, they're a little conflicted about it or, or just a natural need. We want everyone to make, to do the same thing. So it seems like we're doing the right, right thing. And then the flip side of that coin, which is the same coin is if we're choosing to stay asleep and we don't want to look at the things in our lives that are scaring us or that we are dissatisfied with, it makes us really angry when people around us start to do so because 
you know, the fear starts to boil up. We don't want them to want more. We don't want them to look at the parts of their lives that we are just closing our eyes to. Exactly. Totally. And on top of that, as a corollary to that, I would say that there's also people among them, women, obviously, that, that when they see someone else's pain, they don't want to sort of come to terms with it because it it is a reflection of something they've done or felt and they want to forget about it. And I think as a gender, we want to believe that we, we we're on the path to ascendancy. And I believe that we are. But at the same time, every time a woman hears about someone taking a sort of step back or what is a step back in their mind, it it makes them angry because they feel like, one, they were, they're reminded of their own flaws or what they perceive as flaws in those arenas. And they also feel like that as a gender, those women are holding the rest of us back and hearing about them is holding the rest of us back. And I think that's almost exactly the opposite. I think having, having a story of Maggie's, for example, has, she's gotten hundreds of notes from young women who have said, thank you so much for sharing your story. It has either normalized my own or, or it's been a guidebook for how they can navigate their own stories. So I think the notion of, of not wanting to hear about pain or not wanting to hear about happiness. It's funny. It's like, if you only talk about happiness, people are like, Oh, nobody, that's not true. And if you only talk about pain, people also say that's not, and everyone's not like, and it's true. Everyone's not like that, but a lot of people are, I mean, obviously we are either in pain or in love or, or just kind of floating by in in the normal and maybe feeling bored or maybe feeling just perfectly happy. We're all, we do all those things. It's part of the human condition and experience. In your epilogue, you say Maggie's desire for love for someone to tell her she was a valuable being in the world was attacked in the end for its imprudence. So what does that mean to you? What did you come out of that with? I think that Maggie didn't, by any account, um, I think by anyone, even people who did not believe her story, by any way of looking at it, I don't think you could look at it and, and think that Maggie was controlling anything in that relationship. Even, even if someone thought that she was lying about the whole thing, the thing that was very clear, I think from all angles of, of the narrative was that this man made her feel valued as a young person in the world. She came from a a sort of society, a, a place and she was more on the wrong side of the track than him. She, her family had some, troubles with alcohol, et cetera, by no means was it as bad as they portrayed it in the trial. And I found after speaking to her mother for many years that her mother is a caring, wonderful mom. And they had problems, but everybody has problems. And to sort of focus on a family's problems uh, is not really the point. And, And nobody to just focus solely on those and not on what was going on, which is, look, take, take the problems, if you will, and look at them and say, okay, so this young woman is going home and there's some trouble at home. She's going to school and here's this teacher who's incredibly well-respected, who, by the way, went on, went on to be awarded North Dakota's Teacher of the Year. So clearly, a lot of people think that he is a great guy. And what, what is so what is so weird to me about why people felt like Maggie had that Maggie didn't need 
that. She didn't need to feel valued by a, an authority figure as though whatever she wants, she wanted more. She wanted to feel like she was going to be somebody, like she could crawl out of the sort of place she had come from and go on to bigger and better things and not worry about money the way her parents did. And, you know, her father trying to find another job and it being so difficult for him and him having to pass tests to get to be able to work in a warehouse. There were so many things that they suffered that she didn't want to suffer those things. And she saw, you know, high school and this man thinking, this teacher thinking that she was valuable as, as something that would help her. And I think that other people found that like, what are you doing? Stay in your place, which is something we do across our country. We want people to stay in their place so that we feel like we can remain in our places higher than them. I want to talk about marriage, but before we do, I want to talk about the fact that in the book, you spend a lot of time talking about the three women preparing to meet their lovers. And it's, it's, when we talk about marriage, we'll talk about if that shifts at all, typically when people get married, that there's not the opportunity or people stop doing that. But why was that something you chose to focus on um, throughout the book, the, the women preparing to meet their lovers? Why does this deserve that attention? I think that because because we're so conditioned to uh, needing to feel uh, beautiful in our in our society, that's what we get slammed with. Uh, it's getting a little better in some ways. I think you know, obviously, magazines and and different advertisements are featuring women of different sizes and different races and different looks completely which is which is great but there's still uh, it's not and you know forget the ads and the magazines you just go on instagram as a 22 23 year old whatever 16 year old young woman you are feeling like I, when i talk to young women and i talk to many of them instagram was just this like cesspool for that it was just this place where they were like oh she has this. Oh, she took a picture in front of a red Corvette and her hair looks perfect. Oh, she was here and she looks amazing. Oh, her legs are better than mine. There's so much of that that's out there because of our, our society is kind of proliferating images. And so and why I chose to focus on that was because I think that's, it's always been a big part of, of the female psyche is the getting, the, the getting ready, the feeling good. I remember in college, there was a, a young woman who we all couldn't believe she said this. And yet, cause at the time, it seemed so outlandish. And then when I started talking to people, I saw so much of that across the country. This one young woman in, in our college said that she wouldn't go to a party unless she knew that she was the most attractive woman there. And, and that's, I, I remember thinking, that's crazy, you're insane. But now I'm like, oh, I see, I see that a lot. I see that a lot in, on different levels and women that find themselves less attractive than perhaps this young woman did don't want to be at a party where there's, you know, where, where women are wearing short skirts or, or they just don't want to be at a place where they feel like they're not, they're going to be seen as some other. And, and that's something that's so why I thought that because I heard from so many women about the way that they would get ready, not only to meet men or other women or whoever their love interests were in their lives, but just to get, go to work, you know, just to, just everything, the way that a woman feels about the way that she looks is so much more tethered to the way that she feels about who she is more so than men. Even if it's not about wearing sexy clothes or clothes that accentuate 
the the different parts, but it's also about the type of clothes, the clothes that make them feel comfortable. With men, often there's a lot less there's a lot less of a need to well, obviously some men do some men care about their clothes, but my husband probably cares about his clothes and his shoes more than I do. But there's still there's still a laxness with the way that he feels no matter how he goes out into the world. Whereas for me it's more of something that I'm keeping in the back of my mind, I think, more actively. So let's talk a bit about marriage. Lena says at one point, getting laid by the person you think is the most attractive at that moment is the most important biological need that many people subvert on an hourly basis. And Maggie asks at one point on New Year's Eve, she asks Aaron about um, his midnight kiss. And you say, being married could mean a million things, a passionate kiss with kids at your ankles or passion that would not be roused if you stepped on its tail in your prom heels. Um, is there a relationship did you find throughout the research and, and in your own life and all the conversations you've had with the shift in the level of passion and our attitudes towards sexuality and, and marriage? I think that we, it's kind of, it's similar. It's uh, things always stay the same as much as they change. Right. And I think that it was no different in what I found. It's not that it's not that human desire has changed. It's just that the world around the way that we look at it has changed. So it, we still desire the same things we desired years ago. Desire is kind of its own. It's also biologically and sociologically ingrained in us and it's historically ingrained. So there's a lot of that going on too. So that's changing clearly. But I think, you know, if you had a, young woman who's who is gay a hundred years ago she's not going to act the way a young woman who's gay now would act and would feel more comfortable of course coming out into the world and, and feeling and being with who she wanted to be but but it doesn't change i don't think that the person a hundred years ago would have felt much differently and so that i think and i'm not a hundred percent sure of that but i feel like it's pretty i feel like it's a pretty valid idea. And I mean, that, that's what a lot of studies have found and what a lot of people at, at cancer that I spoke to found was that it hadn't changed. And so I don't think it changes. I, I think it's just that. And in terms of marriage, I think that what we want, uh, what we want out of marriage obviously changes what we, what we think we, a husband has become or a wife has become any kind of partner has become a sort of the it used to be that the husband would work and then come home and the wife had prepared dinner and taken care of the kids and now it's changed and oftentimes a husband is a best friend and often a work partner and many things because of female equality rising there's a lot more of the male and female just roles co co coexisting in a way that makes them closer and I think that that, you know, that can cause problems as much as it can cause the opposite of problems. But it's changed. Uh, marriage has definitely changed. A couple of times in the book, you comment that in moments of pure abandon, that doom is pending. Um, you said it's often during those moments of careless joy, um, one of the characters, Sloane, you said she would later realize that's when the anvil hits you on your head. And it seems to be something that's connected throughout the book of, of many of the women's struggles as 
even when they're really clear about what they need and what they want, and they may be getting it, that um, courage and bravery to really completely let go um, and to let go over to, to the moment in, in all aspects and, and um, you know, in connection with their sexuality and their desire and then that being fulfilled. Is that something that you are aware of um, as you were writing? Uh, you say so many of the fears about desire seem to be things we should have overcome years ago. Um, do you feel like we're overcoming? Do you, do you feel like you have? Do you expect to be happy? You mentioned that earlier in the interview. And I think all of those things, I asked you five questions, but I think they're all intertwined. I'm sorry. Can you just repeat? I, I just got a little bit confused about. I guess what I'm asking is, it seemed like moments throughout the book um, where women were in the situation finally where this was exactly what they wanted. And yet there seemed to be a fear that hovered over them as far as letting go into it. And as I read, I noticed that this was something that you had commented on, that that maybe we needed to be careful um, when we were feeling this careless joy, because that's when bad things might happen, when, when we weren't paying attention. Yeah, I, I you know, I, I don't. I don't think that it's necessarily true that bad things happen when you're feeling joy. But what I do think is that you, you just are less expecting of it. And then if it happens, it feels more like you, like you brought it upon yourself by enjoying life. And I, I saw that with a lot of women specifically that I spoke to, whereas men are more like, oh, you know, it's random things happen because they happen. I think that women have this natural tendency to feel that they're allowing something to happen by by being happy. I think women are less are less um, feel that they can fe- don't have the right to feel joy as much as men do. And I don't think that's across. I don't think that's coastal. I do think it's it's middle America. I do think it's in smaller towns. Women feel like they have to let the man go out and have beers with his friends, let the man do X. It's not in, in other, in bigger cities. It's about, you know, the woman goes out and hangs out with her friends. She, she goes out and she does her job. She does what she needs to do. She goes to a spa to chill out. She plays tennis. She plays basketball. Um, but, but in, in the middle of America, you don't see that as much. You don't, you see the woman saying, oh, he's gone out to get beers. He's gone out to hunt. He's gone out to do whatever he's gone out to do. The woman is rarely the one leaving the house to do those things. So I guess my final question, or maybe two questions is, did you learn something unexpected while doing the research? And did you find yourself judging any of the women in a way that that surprised you? I'd had a feeling about judgment, obviously, because I had lived enough of life before I began the book to have seen it, but I didn't know how rampant it was. So that was probably, that's probably one of the reasons it's a large theme is that I also saw that sexual abuse and all kinds of sort of, of, of sexual things that happen to us when we're young, it's so common that that it's if you talk to somebody for more than two weeks or, or a month or a year the way that I did, you will eventually hear it. 
Sometimes it took two years for me to hear about something, but, and I wasn't sitting there looking for these things. They would just come out naturally. People would naturally remember and recall something that happened to me in the course of this research. I remembered multiple things that had happened while talking to other people about their own experiences. And, you know, in terms of, in terms of, I'm sorry, repeat your final question to me. I was just wondering if, as you answered already, things that, that you were surprised about, um, but also maybe in areas that maybe surprised you where you found yourself judging that. Um, oh, yes. Um, I, I found that when I had judgments and they were, I was usually able to stop them because one of the things that I wanted to do more than anything with this book was to not judge, to not to not analyze, to just let these stories speak for themselves. It was not my place, nor I don't, nor do I think it's really any human being's place, except for maybe a psychiatrist or a psychologist to kind of analyze someone's, some, why someone does the things that they do. So, but when I found myself judging, often it was out of fear. And I could see that. And I could see it clearly because I had heard, you know, read, heard so much about it from other women that I realized that my judgment was either fear, my own fear that I had done those things. And, oh, God, I, you know, oh, God, like, it's much like when I, when you see, if you have a child and you see your child doing something that reminds you of something you have done that is, or, or perhaps like sometimes, for example, I see my daughter um, yelling at the dog and being very shrill. And, and that's a very female uh, anti, anti-feminist word to use. But I, I, I'm like, you know, or strident. I actually say to her, don't be so strident. And it's because I don't like when I'm like that and the way that I look at myself when, I, when I'm acting that way. So I think that's a natural thing to feel that, that to judge when you see those same aspects in yourself. And are you happy with the book? Do you feel like having spent so much time and not being certain when you began what the book was going to be about, do you feel clarity around that now? and contentment? I do. I do feel clarity. I do feel contentment. I do feel that from what I've heard from a lot of people who have written to me and talked to me about how it made them feel that it's, it's been helpful to people in a way that I did not think or, or expect in any way was going to happen. So I, in that aspect, I, yes, I feel a great deal of contentment. And what was that? What, in what way are you seeing the book impact people and, and help them? In terms of being seen, in terms of not feeling alone, I think that's the biggest thing in terms of saying, you know, I, there was one woman who said, I, the other day she wrote to me and said, I'm a virgin. And I, you know, there's no virgin in my book that I speak about, but um, she said that she felt like her desires were being validated that just because she was a virgin, she didn't have to not want what she wanted. She could still hold back on certain things and she could let herself go on other things. So, so stuff like that happened has happened so much that it has made me feel, or people have written to Maggie and said, you have made me feel seen. Thank you for giving me a guidebook to what I need to do. Um, so yeah, it's been, yes, I feel contentment in that aspect very much though. Uh, it's just so great, Lisa. <laughs> you just pulling off the veils and let people, letting people look, um, and then look at themselves, and then take away all the, the judgment and shame. It really, really fantastic. Thank you. I I really appreciate it, and I really enjoy talking to you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And um, the book is out. 
Three Women by Lisa Taddeo. And um, do you also, Lisa, do you have a website um, going? Do you have other places people can connect with you? You said people are writing you, so there must be must be some place they're writing to you and, and yes, the other women. Yes, they've mainly written. They've mainly written through Instagram. Uh, my handle is Lisa D. Tadeo. And I do, my website is lisatadeo.com. And I, I, it, I'm pretty sure it connects to my Simon & Schuster um, book page. Okay. Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure reading the book and a real pleasure speaking with you. Same here. Thank you so okay. much, Ellie. Okay. Thanks, Lisa. Bye. Okay. Bye-bye.